Good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this evening across the nation and every Saturday evening for education, awareness, enlightenment, and hopefully entertainment, primarily surrounding the aftermath of crime and sometimes some uh, various and sundry issues. And um, this this evening uh, is under the category, I guess, of various and sundry issues because we are we are uh, very fortunate to be continuing our our author series uh, sponsored by Wild Blue Press, um, I believe, based in Colorado. And um, this evening we have we we are re- we are represented um, by Caitlin Rother, who is a very prolific um, um, author as well as a former investigative investigative journalist. But before before we bring her in, I want to say good evening to my partner in crime, Delilah. Uh, so nice to have you. How are you, and how's your day? Great, thank you, Donna. It's always good to be here on Saturday evenings, and with uh, just the greatest guests. I mean, we we've done yeah. a great job getting a lot of good guests, and this whole author series from Wild Blue Press um, has been very enlightening. You know, for all of the different. Um, cases that the authors have covered and and learning a lot about publishing and writing and and I know you know Caitlin Rother also teaches creative writing so I'm anxious to right. hear you know a little bit about that too yeah i i um had the pleasure of speaking with her last evening on various and sundry topics and i learned a, a great deal so it's it's wonderful so um without further ado why don't we bring her in, uh, Caitlin? Uh, good evening or good afternoon uh, for uh, Pacific time, and uh, uh, welcome to Shattered Lives. Thank you for for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you for the, for that wonderful introduction. I'm happy to be here. Well, and I'm sorry well, that you're buried in snow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry too. I went to confectionery sugar or something, you know, but it's not. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's sunny here, and, and it you know we were just looking at pictures on Facebook of how hard it is here on the West Coast during this terrible time. <laughs> People uh, on the beach. And, <laughs> anyway, sorry, well, I, I just I'm I just sorry. think we better change the topic now. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be fine. Um, okay, this evening, you know, you. You have had a very interesting uh, career, and I know the primary focus is to talk about one of your one of your books that has been a work in progress for many years, and I'm sure close, very close to your heart. But yeah. I think before we do that, for people that may not be familiar with who you are, if you could give us a little bit of your background, and I also want to go into why this book is is different than others and maybe you know from a from a writer's standpoint how you go about uh true crime fiction so so tell us who is Caitlin Rother 
Well, you know, I've been through a, a couple different careers, but they've sort of all blended into one now. So I started out um, right out of college. Within four days, I had a job in PR and marketing um, in San Francisco working for a cruise line, of all things. And Ooh. I knew pretty quickly within, you know, a short amount of time that I really – that wasn't going to be for me because we were supposed to be spinning everything for the positive, and I really, you know, believe in telling the truth. <laughs> And I wanted to help both sides. So I applied to journalism school, and I worked as a reporter um, starting out in Washington, D.C. Then I went to Massachusetts. Then I came back to my home in Southern California, and I worked at several different newspapers, and uh, L.A. Times, L.A. Daily News, and then finally um, settled in at the San Diego Union-Tribune, where I worked until about 2006. So during that whole time, starting out when I was in uh, Western Massachusetts, I missed home, and I started writing this book, Naked Addiction, um, when I was in a writer's workshop, uh, which met on Sundays. Now, I worked like a dog during the week. I was covering City Hall in Northampton, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. and I wanted a creative outlet. So that's kind of how I got started writing fiction. And I was reading Patricia Cornwell. I was reading Michael Connelly. Um, I was reading thrillers and mysteries, and I thought, you know, this seems like a good genre. So, And I also used to like to read true crime in magazine articles, and um, that's kind of how I got interested in it. So it was a really long time ago. Yeah. Um, but over time, you know, what most of what I covered when I was a, a journalist and an investigative journalist was politics and government. So occasionally I would write a crime story, but that was really not my main my main focus. So it's sort of interesting how over time things have evolved, but because I was covering mental illness and I was covering addiction and and other things during my stints on what we used to call general assignment, I got interested in, you know, stories that were about suicide and, you know, people's frailties. And, you know, when I covered government, I covered, you know, the health um, health and social services beats. And Mm -hmm. so I Everything sort of started, you know, becoming kind of symbiotic, and and then I got into writing narrative, and I did that for the newspaper. Narrative is what I teach now um, in narrative nonfiction creative writing, where it's telling stories using fiction techniques. So while I was working for the newspaper, I was working on my novel on the weekends and, and honing that craft. And during the week, I was learning to be an investigative reporter, and I was writing on deadline and writing quickly and writing a lot, learning how to write fast and writing well and clearly, and I kind of just put all those things together. So now <laughs> I have about 17 different jobs as an author. You have <laughs> to you know, do the PR and the marketing, which I learned right out of college. Right. Um, I, I still have to be an investigative journalist when I write these books because I my books are heavily researched. Um, my true crime books and my narrative nonfiction books are heavily, heavily researched. And then I also use the fiction techniques, which I learned way back when in those workshops, and I use what I learned in those workshops, too, to teach my own workshops now. So I teach, I speak, I do public speaking, I do some TV, um, a lot of these crime shows on Investigation Discovery, A&E, and all those kinds of um, those kinds of shows, I often do those. And I write books, and I help other people write books. I work. Um, I do private coaching um, by the hour, and give workshops, and so I do a million things. <laughs> you certainly do. I I I thought I was busy. I mean, I I am as well. But 
sounds very diverse and, and very fulfilling from what you describe. But, and, yeah, you know, I uh, before we get into more of the meat, I, I meant to say right up front, and this is very important, particularly because, um, you know, selling books is kind of the lifeblood for authors. And we must, must mention at least a couple times there is a promotion this evening for your book, Naked Addiction, okay? And yeah. um, so I am going to um, – Tell people uh, about that right now, and we okay. can hopefully remember to say it a couple more times. Great. All right. In celebration of Caitlin's appearance on today's show, her book, Naked Addiction, is on sale for just 99 cents. And there's more for our listeners. After you purchase the ebook, email your Amazon receipt, so purchasing it from Amazon, to promos at wildpress.com. That's promos, plural, at wildpress.com. And wild you'll be blue, registered. Wild Blue Press. Wild Blue Press. I'm sorry. There you wild go. WildBluePress.com. <laughs> yeah. And um, you'll be registered to win a free true crime audiobook as well from Wild Blue Press, courtesy of Shattered Lives with Lady Justice Donna Gore. Um, re- remember to buy the book at this incredible price because it's, it's only lasting, you know, for a short period of time. It's a steal, literally, and I'm embellishing, <laughs> 99 cents. And email the receipt from Amazon to promos at wildbluepress.com for a chance to win an audio book. And remember, please, 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 I'm saying, asking you with the cherry on top, to go and review the book, uh, uh, um, Make It Addiction, uh, on Amazon and Goodreads for Caitlin because that's very, very important. So all of you listening here, I mean, if you can go down and buy it, buy a cup of coffee every morning, you can buy Caitlin's book and more. So please, please do go and register, and you'll you'll be all set and uh, lined up to also win an audio book. So please, please do that again. And um, I'm going to try to remember to say that at least a couple other times. So um, now that we've gotten that um, <laughs> said, we can uh, go on, okay? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So um, let's see, with respect to, so it sounds like you have had a very diverse, um, you know, background and very good um, honing of your skills for what you're doing now. Um, And it sounds like you're pulling all of your skills from various um, aspects of your life into and pouring it into what you love, which to me sounds sounds great. Um, Why don't we talk a little bit about, since we need to focus somewhat on naked addiction. Now, this is um, this is termed a true crime fiction book, correct? It's not, it's not. No, it's actually it's not a true crime book. It's a. It's not a true crime book. No, it's but not it's a true. There is nothing in here that's true. It's it's all I made it up. But it is okay. it is based on things that have happened to me, and it is based on you know when you write fiction to make it have what we call verisimilitude. There needs to be things in it that are true, obviously, um, for Mm -hmm. it to be believable and real, and especially when you do something where you're weaving in what we call police procedurals, which is a type of, you know, of the genre. Um, Michael Connolly actually is is the the guru of that. Um, He sold 58 million books, which is just he's my hero. So, um, and he gave me a critique on this novel, which helped me get it published. So I am foreverly uh, grateful to him for that. So, um, 
but basically what he said to me was he read this he read the book in an earlier stage and he said you know you did really well with your character and he gave me a really nice endorsement for that which is on the front of the book and um but your your police procedures um haven't really caught up and i thought to myself you know he's right because here i am all these years it took me 17 years to get this book published and so I was working on on the weekends, and I and I you know he was right. I realized that my police character uh, Ken Good, who is a mm-hmm. he's an undercover narcotics detective who wants to be a homicide detective, and so he's working relief, which means he's filling in for the uh, homicide detectives who are either you know out sick or on vacation, and he finds this body of a beautiful woman in an alley. Um, in Pacific Beach, which, um, you know, I don't know that there really is an alley where I've set the scene, but there are alleys in Pacific Beach, and I do use real street names. And there are actually real places in this book from La Jolla where I went to high school and um, grew up. So it's got some really, um, it's got a lot of ties for me, you know, for to home, which is, you know, like I said, I started writing it when I was in this workshop across the country in the snow with you guys, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> nostalgic about San Diego and the beach. And so my character, yeah. Ken Good, is um, he's a he's an intellectual guy. He reads Albert Camus and he reads the New York Times, and he he finds this woman's body and he starts basically getting um, permission to lead this homicide investigation on his own, which is a big opportunity for him to prove himself. And the book basically, you know, weaves in a lot of the themes that I go into in my true crime books, um, which are addiction and mental illness and drugs and sex. And sometimes those all sometimes, you know, mesh together. And um, one thing I did want to say, and I we might want to talk about this later in the show, um, but you know the fact do not use violence and graphic details in my books, whether they're true crime or not. I wouldn't say all of them, but most of them, um, true crime or my fiction, I really do not like to use violence and graphic details of violence. So it's very psychological, based, psychologically based. Well, uh, and would you say that you you are? It, it, when you compare yourself to your peers, are you in the minority when it comes to that in the in this genre? You know, I can't really speak for everybody else. I I don't really know how other people feel about it. I was on a panel at the LA Times Book Festival, and I was on a panel with a couple other writers, and one of them um, felt very much the opposite of what I said, saying that he felt like, you know, well, this is the truth and we shouldn't hide the truth. Well, I'm not hiding the truth, but I just don't feel like we need to sensationalize or glorify violence. And so I put it in where Mm -hmm. I feel like it's absolutely necessary and if I need to make a point. But I don't, you know, it's really all about the language. So I just did this workshop this weekend, I'm sorry, last weekend, um, at the Southern California Writers Conference, and I did um, I did a workshop on how to to handle sensitive information, whether it's about suicide or whether it's about murder, whether it's about violence, whether it's about trauma, whether it's about illness. You know, you don't want to beat the head over the reader with a lot of really heavy, dark details that they can't handle. Because I can't tell you how many times I hear from from readers. And this is not specific to true crime readers because they seem to have 
more um, ability to, to deal with this. But even so, mm-hmm. even among true crime readers, I have heard right. that, you know, it's too dark. One of my books, um, Dead Reckoning, is about a couple that got tied to an anchor, thrown overboard alive and down and drowned. And everybody said, you know, that crime right. was just too horrible. I just couldn't even read your book. And these are true crime readers. So imagine if you're, I mean, I'm trying to appeal to a broader audience, to a more mainstream mm-hmm. audience, and especially with a book like Naked Addiction, which is crime fiction, mystery, thriller. Um, I just don't feel like it's necessary, and I feel I feel like I'm not adding anything to to people's reading pleasure. That's not to say it doesn't sell in, in some other um like, uh, what's his name, Lee Childs has quite a bit of violence in his books, and he's a very best-selling author. So, it's, Right. I so I think it varies. If you, can, if you can use language, and this is my speech pathology background, coming, uh, coming to the fore, uh, if you can use other, other ways of describing what it is that you're doing and still be able to paint the picture, right. then why not? Then why not? Well, in one way, I mean, since your show is based a lot on the crime victim, um, you know, I like to interview the crime victims when I can. They don't always want to cooperate, and I totally understand that, and I, you know, that's absolutely their choice, and I can understand why they may not want to talk about all this painful trauma that happened to them. But, you know, it's also very cathartic for some crime victims, and I find that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the book that I just, turned in uh, it's called then no one then no one can have her it'll be coming out in november um it's about a domestic uh violence murder and it really you know i spent a lot of time interviewing the crime victim's best friends and and mother and um it was just fascinating to me to be able to to craft an entire book which i don't get to do that often which had so much about the victim in it, and I was really able to paint her what she was like. And I was told um, by one of her friends who I let, you know, she was interviewed for, she said, you really captured her. And that made me feel really good. And Yeah, that's quite a compliment to you, right? Yeah. I you mean, know, I think I, I, I just want to say that I I think it, it's very fascinating and, and um to me anyway that so many people who write true crime do it with the victim in mind, and I think that is so important. I think so many times in in mainstream media, the victim gets forgotten because that yeah. isn't the headline. That's mm-hmm. not the story that. Right. And and you know from your journalism background, right? It's, it's, well, the they pro- want the gory. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The prosecution gets to present its case first, and I think that oftentimes. You know, when you when when you're a reporter and you're covering a case when it's just starting out going through the courts, the defense mm-hmm. doesn't say much, and the defense oftentimes gets upset with the media coverage. But the fact of the matter is, the way the court system works, the prosecution presents its case first, all the way through. So you know, they're charged, they're arraigned, they're you know, there's a preliminary hearing, you know, all the way through, all the way up to the trial. The defense really doesn't say much because you know, it's actually a strategy not to say much so that they don't show their hand. Um, the prosecution, you know, gives more information in order to move it to trial, but they still don't show all their hand either. But I'm just saying, you know, it's much more slanted toward the prosecution, I think. Um, and that that's so you hear what a bad person this this person charged with murder is. And 
I find that, you know, nobody's all bad and even no, even victims, nobody's all good. So when I of one course. of the, right, one mm-hmm. of my goals when I set out to write a book, um whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is to write a three-dimensional write three-dimensional characters. And so I really try to humanize people who are, you know, convicted of of murder because you know, some I often write about about killers who are mentally ill. So you know, to me, when somebody's mentally ill, that doesn't mean they're evil. It means they're mentally ill, <laughs> you know. And so oftentimes when they kill somebody, they, you know, they're mentally ill. And I, I think that that's one of the things in society that I've found that that's another thing that's that's somewhat frustrating to me, the way that, that people find that people who kill who are mentally ill are bad, and they're bad through and through, and they're the devil, and they're evil. And I just, I'm like, wow. And that's not to say that can't be true, but oftentimes they're just sick, <laughs> you know, they they see things. Well, it, it probably should be viewed as, as a type of disability versus, like, you know, evilness, and, you know, there's that stigma associated with it, um, as in, you know, I don't know, maybe years ago alcoholics were, and now it's like, Same oh, Same you know. Addiction yep. is an illness, and, and mm-hmm. uh, that's right, you know, addiction is an illness. Yeah, and I know a lot of people feel like, oh, well, you should just stop. Well, a lot of them, the reason they're addicts is because they can't stop, or they, you know, well, not that they don't want that to. Isn't that like why, why, why doesn't she just leave? You know, we're talking about your your other book that you know, in in right. intimate intimate partner violence as as Susan used to term it versus yes. domestic violence, yes. and it, it's not that easy. You know, it right. is not. Would you like to um, get into a little bit about? How you how you proceed with your um, uh, developing of of a character, particularly for a fictionalized book, or and I'm also wondering what was your um, what was your reaction when you found out you updated your police procedures? Had you had you you know had you missed a lot? What what did you include that maybe was not in there before that you can share with us that? Might be interesting I'll to tell us. you. <laughs> I have rewritten okay. this book so many times before it was published. Um, yeah. I I rewrote it literally. I mean, it took me 15 years to get a book published at all. My first book was uh, a true crime book called uh, Poisoned Love, and it was based on a on a case that I covered here in San Diego. Um, her name was Kristen Rossum, and she was a toxicologist with the medical examiner's office, and. Um, you know, I, I started covering this case at the paper, um, f- actually from a completely different standpoint. I was the, a government reporter, and I got tipped to her being arrested for murder, and I got into it, and it turned out that she was um, a meth user, and she had been stealing meth from the mm-hmm. medical examiner's office because when they go to people's houses, they collect illegal street drugs that they have in the house. They also collect prescription drugs. Anyway, she had access to all that, and she was using it secretly. Using it, yeah. It. Wow. So anyway, I I, um, I really got into her as a character um, based on, um, you know, some of, the, some of the personal information that I've been through in my family. Um, she was an addict. She came from a wealthy family. Um, I wouldn't say wealthy, wealthy, but well off. They were... Both parents had PhDs. Both of my parents had PhDs. Um, her husband, she claimed, committed suicide. She staged a suicide scene. My husband committed suicide 
So I had that personal information. My husband was an alcoholic. She was a meth user. So, I mean, I was able to bring a lot of my own personal knowledge of all of the themes that were running through this case. And mm-hmm. while I was um, I was not able to get Naked Addiction published, I tried and tried. It's very difficult to get um, a novel published when it's your first book. So I thought, well, you know what? I've worked and worked and worked. I'm just going to put that aside. I'm going to try to get nonfiction published. So I went to my editors. I said, hey, I want to write a book about this case. I'd like to cover the, the trial, et cetera. So we we agreed that I could do that, you know, as soon as I finished covering the trial and everything, which I did. And um, and then when I was able to get Poison Love published, I went back and I went into Naked Addiction again, and I took what I learned from covering this trial all the way through. I wrote 50 stories um, from arrest to sentencing on this case. 50 and, stories? Wow. Yeah, and, and I really learned a lot. And so mm-hmm. I used what I learned in there and put it into Naked Addiction. Um, and I mean... Honestly, I can't remember every little detail, but I just there were just things that I just didn't even know at the time that I had written the novel that I, you know, on just how how a, a crime scene is processed and in what order and how search warrants work and um, at what point what happens and you know when I was revising it again last year in order to get get it revised and updated for Wild Blue, I even made some other changes that I've learned now that I've written all these other true crime books. And I realized, oh, my God, how did they do this without a search warrant? And I stuck a search warrant in some place, you know, <laughs> like that. I was like, uh-huh. and, and just the way that the, the you know, detectives think and the way they talk and the way they treat each other, the way they operate, you know, the, you know what you're, uh, how, how much you have to do as quickly as you have to do it when, when a murder has just happened, for example. Um, you know, you're up all night for sometimes a couple days and, these are just things that I learned as I right. as I, as I re- reported on these other cases. As you went along, yeah. Is it, characters. Caitlin, is it your intent to make a fictionalized story as real as possible? As so, almost as if you know, if the person gets engrossed in the content, they'll almost feel as if it it is it is real. Is that is that one of your goals? Well, you know, I'm not writing fantasy. I'm not writing um, science fiction. You know, mm-hmm. it, it really, for me, um, crime fiction, I think, should feel believable and true. Right. So um, I was working on a sequel, and I'm still working on it, but I um, I developed a drug. I made up a drug. So that's something new, um, and it's something that I thought would be really cool, and I don't want to give it away, but... Um, I don't do mm-hmm. that in Naked Addiction. I basically keep it to what I knew. And the characters each have a little part of me. And Ken Good, even though he's a man, he has a lot of me in him, <laughs> you know. So, um, I, you know, I crafted him. And obviously I'm not a man, but it's funny because I have a lot of male friends and I get along well with men and I've always felt like sometimes I feel like I look at things more like a man than a woman and as I learned from writing this character I'm not a man I'm a woman so I had to have men read it and tell me this is what a man would would do in this situation and this is how he what he would think and I realized you know what I actually don't think as much like a man as I thought I did I needed to be told so mm-hmm. kind of funny Mhm 
So this has gone through many, many different permutations. And now do you feel at, at this, well, obviously, if you've, you know, gotten it published and this is, you've had all these different people give you feedback and readings. This is this is the finished product. You're satisfied with this. You like this. You, you're going on to a sequel. Is that how something, uh, a book like this kind of, kind of evolves in that it's like, well, I'm not really sure about this and I have to check this and then I have to update this. I mean, whereas if you're talking about a real case, it's a, a totally different scenario. No, I would say a true crime book is much more difficult to write. Is it? And there are many more things that you have to check and be accurate because you're writing about real people. And mm-hmm. these are real people who, you know, if you need to be really, really, really careful and very mm-hmm. accurate, and I spend a tremendous amount of time doing extraordinary research. In fact, I've had one review which said uh, that my research um, was, if you like detail, um, exhaustive. If you don't like so much detail, it's exhausting. And I'm like, great, thanks a lot. Okay, <laughs> I well. one of those books where, where they <laughs> describe something on the wall for like 30 minutes. You know, I don't do that. I can't take those kind of books. (laughs) You know, so I I know what you mean, but so is it um, when when you're when you're when you're writing these books, do do you well do you have a preference one way or another? Now that you've finally finished your your last version of this one, versus doing versus doing a real uh, you know a, a real case. Well, you know, my my true crime, um, I have an audience for that now. I've built up an audience over time, and so I, you know, I, I have more readers, and it's hard yeah. to break into crime fiction. So I really hope that with this show and, you know, with more people reading my true true sure. crime, that people will take a chance with the, the crime fiction because – I really do enjoy writing it, and I'd like to write it. I'd like to write more of it, but I don't have time because I have to make a living, and I ha- I make a living with the nonfiction. So I do really enjoy it, though. It's it's a totally it's a totally different thing. But like I tell my students, you know, writing narrative nonfiction and writing fiction, it it's the same techniques. I mean, I teach when I teach creative writing. You know, whether you're writing something real or you're writing something that's that's not real you still use the same basic components of storytelling. So mm-hmm. no plot, characters, setting, which in the class for narrative nonfiction, they're, they're all the same techniques. It's just easier when I can make it up, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't have to do as much research. It doesn't matter. You know, I can, I can make somebody really come alive in fiction in a different way than I sometimes can in the nonfiction because not everybody will talk to me and I can't get into everybody's head. I can't assume or pretend or exaggerate or create or embellish anything. All right. In truth, so, it has to be real. It has to be true. So those are, yeah, those are the good points in that you can, yeah, you can use your creativity, you can embellish and what, and, and one of the things that, you know, we, we had touched on the other evening was that you can kind of delve into um, some of these areas that that you covered from it. I'm a human services advocate, and I deal with a lot of um, with with people who are blind and multiply disabled, and have you know have have many different medical issues and and social social problems, uh, social slash economic problems. So, um, with with all of the experience you've had in covering in government, like I work in government, it, you, you had told me that you were. Um, you know, um, 
focused on the mental illness and addiction aspects of of things. And I imagine with the um, fictionalized characters, then you can just kind of, you know, use your own license to do whatever, like you just said, um, make up a new drug. <laughs> but right. in real life, you can't do that because you'll get sued. But what? let's talk a little bit about those aspects because I know they're very important to you in terms of you touched on the fact that, you know, we we as a society think that mental Ill, illness is, you know, Adam Lanza, everyone thinks he's evil. All right, maybe what he did was evil, but but he was still mentally ill. So right. with with regard to that, what are some other things that, you know, we we can we can say about those things to kind of set readers straight? Well, my book Lost Girls um was a very controversial book. Um it was about 3 books ago. It was uh, based on the Amber Dubois and Chelsea King rapes and murders by sex uh sex offender John Gardner took place here in San Diego County um, mm-hmm. in 2010. My book came out in 2012. And I was not able to get the victims' families to uh, cooperate with me and participate in the book, which I tried to do. I attempted um, a couple times, well, more than a couple times, um, had conversations um, by email and tried to have them by phone. But anyway, I ended up getting um, really into... Um, I wasn't able to get as much into the crime victims' experiences in that book, but I focused a lot on John Gardner. And what I also uh, focused on was the um, our dysfunctional and systemic problems here, at least in California, and I can imagine that they probably exist in other states as well. The way that the... Um, the mental health corrections and parole systems worked together did not work properly in this case. So what we had was a guy who's bipolar, a guy who's got impulse uh, control problems, a guy who has had, has had, um, you know, mental illness and he has tried to commit suicide at age nine and 10 even, um, tried repeatedly to, to you know, take his car when he was high or drunk or whatever, and run into cement barriers again, trying to kill himself right around the time when he killed these two girls. He wow. he and his mother actually he knew he was disintegrating. His mother, who was a psychiatric nurse, could see what was happening. They went together to to a, a clinic here in Southern California and saw a psychiatrist. And John Gardner even said. I think I might be a 5150, which here in California means, you know, I'm a danger to myself or others, said, do you feel like killing somebody right now? And he said, no. And the doctor gave him a couple of vials of medication and sent him on his way. So that's a big problem because oh. not that I'm feeling sympathetic for him necessarily because he went and killed two girls, but by the same token, we aren't safe in a situation like that. For whatever reason, the doctor could have put him on a hold, could have given him medication that, you know, see how it works. Of course. But what ended up happening is he went into into an even fuller-blown uh, situation with mania and went and lost it and ended up killing one of these girls. So I also found out from interviewing him and his mother that he tried to get to get a bed in either a mental health clinic or a substance abuse facility here in, in San Diego County, and guess what? 
not a single one would take him because he was a sex offender. There is not a single bed in San Diego County where you can go. Even when you know you're in trouble and you feel like you're going to hurt somebody, he couldn't get a bed. If you're a sex offender, they have no special wing or no special facility for sex offenders with substance abuse or whatever? No, no. I found that out during my, my investigative research for the book. Nobody covered that in the media during the, this, this case in the newspaper. Nobody thought to ask that. So, uh-huh. you know, and then when there was one other thing that I found, which is here's a guy. I got his some of his mental health records through his mother. I, I got him to sign a waiver, and we sent it to the state mental health um, department, and they basically refused to release any of the documents. You know why? Because it made them look like they made a big, giant mistake. Here they and released, they would never admit it. Right. right. They, they admit released it. this guy after having... Um, a mental breakdown in in prison. He was threatening to kill the guards. He was threatening to kill the judge. He was clearly lost it. And Mm -hmm. yet they designated him as a low or medium risk offender, not as a serious, violent, you know, designated offender. So he wasn't being monitored in the same way that he would have or, you know, sent someplace else where you would receive treatment for this. So they let this guy go. Yeah, They let him out. How how, how prevalent do you think this is, Caitlin, all across the country? I think, country? It's, I think sure it's a problem. It's everywhere. It's a big problem. I agree. I think and every you think, state. You know, the, you say after he gave them the, the vial of drugs, so obviously he prescribed something for him, and then he the had drug. an even. Right. Uh, uh, that's yeah. a whole other can of worms. <laughs> exactly. And so, and you know what? He, he told me. He knows that he, he he is where he needs to be, and he's finally getting medicated properly. His mother says, this is the, you know, John that I used to know. That other one, I just, you know, I couldn't believe he was capable of that because this is not who my son was that I knew. But, you know, his John told me he knew he knows he, he would kill again if he were out, so he knows he needs to be mm-hmm. behind bars. So, you know, there's, there's that. He's in the place he needs to be, but... So that that just is a prime example of where, you know, they're they're just looking. I mean, it, I ask myself the question: What is the criteria they they use for for high risk, medium risk, low risk, and letting them out? What is the criteria? I don't. You know, I think what happened, and this since since this case, um, or since he was in prison, they 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 passed a law called Chelsea's Law here in California. Yes. And there are some things that were supposed to change, and to be honest, I don't know what's been funded and what hasn't, because initially, at least for a couple of years, there was, you know, they pass a bill, and then there's no funding to do anything that the bill says that they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. That sounds very familiar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, at the time, there were there were two psychiatrists, I think, that were, um, I don't think, I know, two psychiatrists, one from corrections and one from uh, mental health that would assess these prisoners who were getting out, and in this case, um, they did they didn't agree, but they let them out anyway. So now I guess there are three who weigh in on this, so that if there's a tie like that, you know, there'll be a the tie will right. be broken by the third. That so is- basically, you know, one thought that he you know was in worse shape than the other. That's what happened. Than the other. 
That actually happened with our Board of Pardons and Paroles with the offender who killed my my father and uh, on the day that we were supposed to report, oh, oh, well, one dropped out. And I said, well, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, if one votes to keep them in and one votes to keep them out, oh, well, then you'll, you, you just have to, uh, you know, go home and start all over again. And I said, no, no, no. So I, I forced them to get a third person because there was that danger. Well, good for you. And, yeah. Everything I, I I need to send you that blog, Caitlin. Uh, everything that could go wrong did go wrong with with our our hearing. It was absolutely horrific, and myself and Michelle S. Cruz, who is originally from California, an attorney and a staunch advocate, used to be our state constitutional victim advocate actually changed um, policy for the State of Connecticut Board of Pardons and Paroles as a result of what happened with, with our case about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So we're very, very proud. But So it, it sounds very familiar what you're describing. I think every single state is right. dealing with this. And whether you portray this from a real case or a fictionalized case, right. these things – these things are true. You know, you can't make it up. The things that actually happen to crime victims, it's like the the worst thing you could ever happen, you know, happens or something even worse than that. Right. You know, and there's it's, one other thing that I just want to mention that I also sure. learned during my research, and that is, you know, these GPS bracelets that these sex offenders are wearing, and we feel safe while they're wearing these bracelets, Right. Guess what? No. Nobody's <laughs> monitoring them in nobody's real time. Not. Nobody's preventing anybody from preventing any crime, and nobody looks at this information until later, right? So nobody knew that he was spending, you know, 20 minutes at 3 a.m. in this remote mountain area doing who knows what. You know, after mm-hmm. they found this out, the sheriff's um, search and rescue team started sending teams out to go look to see if they found remains in any of these places where his bracelet took it. But nobody looked at it until after these murders were committed. Until after the fact they don't have any, oh, we're we're short-staffed and we don't have anybody to monitor, right? Or but, babysit, but, yeah, but, babysit. And these aren't meant to be, you know, in real-time bracelets. These are, who know, you know, it's like, oh, we don't have enough, we don't have enough staff, blah, blah, blah. So it's just, yeah. you know, I, I tell that to audiences, and they look at me with these mouths gaping open. You know, they're just like, right. oh, my God. And then the last thing is the reason you asked about the assessment, the reason he didn't get sent, you know, was because of the disagreement, but also because the facility where they send people who have serious problems and they're serious, um, serious violent um, offenders, it's $180,000 a year to treat one of them. So there's you know, no mm. pay for that either, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It is just incredible. Like I say, you whatever you use uh, in your imagination for your fictionalized stories could not could not even compare to what happens with with true life. As as I right. said, you know, and 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 maybe this is a good another opportunity to remind people who are listening. Please, please do because I'm sure we we, we don't want to give away your content with regard to naked addiction and everything that happens because that, you know, that would defeat the purpose. But maybe because we have about, uh, we have about 17 minutes or so to go left of the show, okay. uh, maybe you can give us a few hints here and there uh, to entice people. And the reason we're doing that is because we have a sale going on for 99 cents for listeners. And, and, and what you have to do is, you um that's in celebration for this book and and you purchase the ebook 
uh, from Amazon, and they give you a receipt. And then you go to promos at wildbluepress.com, and you, you'll be registered there uh, to win a, a free true crime audio book of, um, of another topic or of another author, courtesy of, well, um, of this show by listening to this show. And also, um, don't we, don't forget that this is you know this is a, a really incredible price. Um, and after the promotion is available, we still want you to go to to Amazon to purchase them because they're still a good deal. And please do not forget to go and to write a review because it's very important to all authors in our series. Yes, yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. So and buy one for you your little, friend for a Easter, too. <laughs> there is mental illness in Naked Addiction, and it's not like heavy book. Like, you know, I don't want people to think just because there's suicide in it and there's mental illness and addiction in it. But you have to have a book that's about something. <laughs> it's also mm-hmm. about sex and, um, you know, the beach. And it's it's uh, it's my character, Ken Good, is, is sarcastic, and, you know, I think he's funny. <laughs> And I've been told mm-hmm. by by people who've read the book that they really like his character and and he's a he's a handsome surfer, so uh-huh. you know, you get you get a nice feel for San Diego and the beach and and he's you know he's a he's a he's got a wry sense of humor, but basically the the book opens where he is paying tribute to his mother who committed suicide when he was just six years old on the Coronado Bridge, and um, basically he goes back every year with with a rose, and he takes the petals, and he tosses them off the bridge into the breeze, and what ends up happening this time is he sees a couple birds, and he's having these thoughts about his mom, and he feels like his mother is coming to his, her spirit, mm-hmm. the birds, and I mean, I don't want to sound like a Looney Tune because I'm not, but this is basic. This is based on something that happened to me when I went to um, the place where I put my husband's ashes, and I had this very strange thing happen to me, where I felt that his spirit was there, and it was partly having to do with these birds and the sky and the trees and the wind just stopped, and it was just. It was very, um, it was a very emotional, you know, yeah. couple of moments for me. And you know, I have no idea whether he was really there, but I, I felt his presence, um, you know, here in my house one time when I was playing music that I know that he liked, and I just all of a sudden started crying. I mean, and I felt him in me. I mean, it was, it was very, it was very strange. And that's the only time that that's really those two times of have been the only times that that have happened. But anyway, that's what inspired that scene, um, something very personal for me. And so I gave it to my character. And so, um, you know, suicide is something that's happened to me and my family. And, and so that's something that I've, and I've covered it as a reporter. I've, I've, I've actually um, had it come up in a number of these true crime cases that I write about too. And they just sort it sort of chooses these cases sometimes choose me i don't sometimes choose them so that in fact more often than not they choose me and that sometimes comes up and in fact the one that i that i mentioned earlier then no one can have her which is coming out in november um it also involves a suicide and this is a real case mhm 
Um, that's, that's well, that was kind of, of my next question. How do you how do you choose the cases that you write about, or how how does right. it all come about in, in the process of writing, whether it be a true crime or whether it's a fiction book? Um, how do the ideas come to you? Do the, do people submit cases, or do you? Is it something you read about? What, well, what is yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes. Um, like I said, it, they find me, and in, 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 and that's the that's the best way to say it. I don't know why, but this most recent one, um, there was a reader in Prescott, Arizona, who had read the one that I mentioned about the the two people being tied to the anchor. Those right. two people, Tom and Jackie Hawks, were from Prescott, Arizona originally, and that's where they met. That's where they got married, and that's where this woman who read that book lived, and she started sending me news articles from this other case and said, I think you'd be really interested in this, and she was right. So, I mean, I, I went back and I read all the news articles from the case. It, it, there were five years' worth of news articles that I read because this case took forever to get from from arrest to sentencing, and it went through two different trials and all kinds of roller coaster um, craziness with um, mistakes that were made and all kinds of ethical allegations between the attorneys and the judge. There were a number of different judges. The first set of attorneys ended up getting off the case in the middle of the trial, um, saying there was a conflict of interest. And there were other um, charges that were filed against Steve DeMocker is the guy who was convicted um, and sentenced for the death of his uh, murder of his um, ex-wife. They'd been married for, you know, 25 years. They both thought they were each other's soulmates. And 35 days after the divorce was finalized, she's beaten to death with a golf club. So um, mm. the second trial, the he has a new defense team, and they decide that it's the guy who lived in the guest house who was actually more likely to have been the killer than than Steve DeMocker, except that he was dead because he killed himself. And so part of what I ended up doing in this in this book was was going through all of the evidence and the his autopsy report, and you know talking to some of some friends and reading through all the investigative reports from the sheriff's department and county attorney's office creating the the scene of his suicide because it was very strange there were bullets all over the place so it was like a separate um case of of a death you know to solve because he wasn't there to defend himself but he was basically being blamed for her murder so it became part of the story wow it sounds interesting yeah and he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, once again, my own personal experience comes it into comes it up. as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, these these cases, like I said, they find me, but I I, I end up, maybe, maybe there's a reason. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, that's true. Is there, um, I mean, can you get all of, can you get all of your books in one place at, at, Wild Blue Press, or is there you you have I'm sure your 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 own website and whatnot. Um, would you like to share that sure, information my, as well? My, sure, my website is CaitlinRother dot com at C A I T L I N R O T H E R. My books are all the ones that are still in print are are on. I think they're most of them are still in print. Um, they're all available on Amazon. Wild Blue Press. Uh, published Naked Addiction, so you can get that one through Wild Blue. Yeah. Um, but th- but I have a, a number of different publishers, so they're the only single place that you can go would be an online place 
you know, like like Amazon, but they are available in bookstores also, most of them. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, if anybody wants a signed copy, they can contact me personally. Oh, that that'd be really nice. And and you are involved in your in in various um, se- seminars and uh, work workshops in in which you teach. Is it basically in Southern California, or do you travel? across the country and do that as well? Well, I've got a I've got a, a beach house writing salon that is on April 18th here in San Diego. Oh, it's a long event and Steve Jackson, who is yeah. one of the publishers at Wild Blue, he's uh, got a zillion books that he's published, both fiction and nonfiction. He'll be there as well as part of the faculty. And um I think that's a great place for people to come um who want to write a book and want to to learn from established authors who've published lots of books and we know the ropes. But I, if you live in San Diego, then you know I teach at UCSD Extension and at San Diego Writers Inc. But I do private coaching um, by phone and by email for anybody who doesn't live in San Diego. I do work with clients all over the world, actually by phone and by email. So um, I'm happy wow. to do that with with people as well. Wow, that's that's wonderful. Um, you know, to be able to, to to get at it from as many angles as you do must must be very nice. Do Do you have time time for other things in your life? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I watch I watch movies. I like movies. I have been. Uh, my boyfriend has been encouraging me to sing, so he's in a band and he sings. So we've been we've started singing together. That's been actually a lot of fun. Oh really. Yeah, I uh, didn't know it had me. Well, see what we discover in our <laughs> in our more mature years. <laughs> right, and I also like to swim in the ocean. So when it's warm enough, I I uh, I do some long distance swimming and mm-hmm. I go for walks. So yeah, I do have I do yeah. have some time to do that because I have to. You know, yeah. I would go crazy if all I did was work all day. But I, do I know. Well, out of all your books, though, let me ask you this: Have you been approached to have them? become a um a movie at all yes yes i have a number of of i've had a number of producers interested but i've so far never been able to uh get it all the way to the movie stage unfortunately i would love to you (laughs) would to have that financial backing is the key right well yeah i don't know anything about making a movie on my own so i would have to i've had i would have to have somebody else do it but i mean i have had a, a number of the books um, featured on Investigation Discovery, um, mm-hmm. some That's of them six like or seven times. So, oh, yeah, by different shows. Well, what do you think the holdup is when you know so many producers have come to you? At what point does it finally say, "Forget it"? <laughs> what's the <laughs> well? I what's mean, the it's stumbling it's block one, there. It's one thing to be on a you know a one-hour show where they have two cases that they feature, you know. But it's different when it's a whole movie. Um, I can, I don't know. I honestly, if you look at if you look at the movies today, there aren't a lot of them that are based on single murder cases. I don't think. I mean, it, I I always think that Lifetime would be a good place for it, and I I got close there a couple times, but so far no deal. Oh, well. I don't I don't know what the stumbling block is. I I, I would love to figure that out. I, I just new show that is getting a lot of attention right now called Bosch that Michael Connolly's got on, on Amazon. Oh, what is that, that for those of us that don't know? 
it just started. It's based it's based on his um one of his detective characters in one of his many books. Uh-huh. Um in one one area of his many but he has two primary characters. He has a lawyer called the Lincoln lawyer. Um I forget the guy's character's name and then he has this guy Harry Bosch who is a detective, a homicide detective with the LAPD. And he told me that, you know, it's just really really difficult to get a movie made even with somebody with who is incredibly as high profile as him. So he's mm-hmm. written 20 something books and now he's got this series. He's had I think one Two two other movies made based on his books, um, and when he told me that, he only had had one, and that was Blood Work, which I think was a Clint Eastwood, if, I, if I'm correct. And uh-huh. the second one had Matthew McConaughey as the, the lawyer character. But it's just really difficult. Same thing, Patricia Cornwell. She mm-hmm. did a movie um, for as many years as, as she could possibly dream, and, you know, she was a She's a huge author, um, right. and I wrote about her actually in one of my books, Twisted Triangle. Um, it's a true story, and she was involved with this FBI agent, a female FBI agent, and had an affair with her, and got involved in, in tangentially in this case. Um, but anyway, she when I wrote that book, I I wrote about this as well that her efforts to try to get a movie made and approaching Jodie Foster with no luck and Demi Moore, you know, would you please play my character, Kay Scarpetta. It's just really hard. Right. When it's that hard for even the huge authors, imagine how hard it is for little old me. <laughs> well, being that's so little old, but it, there's some oh, stumbling box that we haven't identified then, but you can keep trying, you know. But uh, Yeah, but, absolutely, like, and I never give up. Yeah, and um, it sounds like, you know, people keep approaching you, and there, there's always going to be material for radio shows as well as for books. So I think we'll we will always keep busy. And it this has been such a pleasure to have you, you on. You. Um I hope that someday when you get a little less busy or if you just want to come back for fun to talk about whatever, we would love to have you back. Oh but great, I'd we, love to come back. That'd be that'd Yeah, be and we know you know, we know you're here um partially uh, to represent Wildwood Press and we really appreciate um, they're giving us this showcase for these seven weeks. And um, so I'd like to, to thank everyone um, in, involved, and we continually look forward to, to all of the authors. Maybe we can do something at the end as a, as a wind-up, but maybe we can have uh, all of them call in uh, and, you know, do some, some, some short vignette with, with all of the series. That might be fun, but I don't know. Yeah, it, it could be. So in in any case, um, please please do all of you um, go and take advantage of the promotion. Um, go to Amazon to get um, the book Naked Addiction um, and get your receipt so that you can register and also get another audio book. And please do um, please do go to Caitlin's uh, website as well so you can see all of her other books. And we we wish you well in all of your endeavors. And please do keep in touch with us because we we would like to hear what you're doing. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and and talk about all my books and answer your questions. I thought it was really informative, I hope, for people. And and thank you very much. Well, it's it's our pleasure. Delilah, do you have any parting thoughts? 
I'm just thrilled with everything that went on in this show today. I th- I've learned a lot yeah. from Caitlin, oh, and good. I think there's, we That's... could probably keep going for hours. <laughs> I could <laughs> talk for hours. And that's one of my... <laughs> yeah, I could, as long as someone's listening. But she's yeah. got to go well, and have it... walk in the sunshine now. <laughs> right, right. Right? <laughs> All right. So with that, we will close out another edition for, of Shattered Life. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you, Wild Blue Thank Prince. You. Thank you, Delilah. And we will see you next Saturday for another exciting podcast.